Good morning, St. Peter's. It's great to be with you today. Uh, uh, this is my first pre-recorded sermon. I'm currently uh, heading east back to New York City from the West Coast, and where we're staying today doesn't have reliable internet, so I'm hoping that the pre-recorded sermon uh, will, will work. Um, this has been such a, a crazy summer for, for all of us, and I think it's, it's really understandable if we're feeling overwhelmed and stressed and stretched thin uh, in, in a time of, of world-shaking concerns, of unprecedented world-shaking concerns. There's a constant struggle against systemic racism and a culture of white supremacy. We're, we're trying to live in the midst of a, of a global pandemic that doesn't seem to be retreating, uh, at least in, in our country. And uh, for many of us, even on a domestic level, there's a lot of concern and anxiety about how are we going to juggle family and career in the fall with uncertain school schedules and school learning modalities for, for our children. It feels like we're all just um, at, the, at the end of our tether. And so uh, this morning, um, as we look at the life of the prophet Elijah in our reading from 1 Kings, we, we've gotten a, a sneak peek into the life of this prophet at, at a total low point in his career. He's, he's, he's overwhelmed, he's under threat, and he feels like he just simply can't go on. And so he's sitting on top of Mount Horeb, and, and Elijah is pleading with God to take back his call as a prophet and to, to end his life. So if you, like, like me, can find it easy to identify with a biblical character who uh, is in despair and uh, really kind of questioning God about why is this happening to me, I invite you to enter in with me to the story of Elijah and uh, to imagine how God's response to Elijah on Mount Horeb might encourage us to, to move forward uh, as people of faith in, in the midst of these very trying times. So a little bit about Elijah. He's a, a significant prophet in the history and imagination of Israel. Uh, he's, he is a prophet, but unlike other prophets like Malachi or Isaiah, who have books named after them, we don't know Elijah by his, his words, but rather by his works. Uh, Elijah is, for us, a, a prophet of action. And we're introduced to Elijah here earlier in 1 Kings um, at the start of a particularly difficult episode in the history of Israel's story. To set the stage, we're about a century after the, the Davidic dynasty, the reign of King David and his son Solomon. It's been almost 100 years. The, the dynasty is in tatters. Uh, there have been uh, many successive kings since, uh, since David and Solomon's time. Uh, and the, how, the royal house is in turmoil, kind of like a, a Game of Thrones situation, uh, if you can imagine that. We have uh, Ahab on the throne, and sitting next to him is his, his wife, uh, Jezebel. Now, uh, Jezebel uh, isn't uh, um, treated well by the author of the Book of Kings. She's depicted as a kind of um, you know, caricature of a, of, a, of a villain, of like a, of an evil queen from a fairy tale. Uh, and she's described as leading her weak-willed husband Ahab, along with the rest of Israel, into the worship of a Phoenician fertility god called uh, Baal. 
Um, and under Jezebel's guidance uh, and influence, uh, Ahab constructs a temple to Baal uh, in Samaria. He invites hundreds of prophets of Baal to come down into Israel from Phoenicia to preach Baalism. Uh, and uh, he oversees the destruction of sacred sites that are dedicated to the worship of Israel's God, uh, Yahweh. Uh, and before long, the hearts of the people of Israel had turned away from God to the worship of Baal, and the prophets and the priests and the followers of Yahweh were, were killed or scattered or largely uh, driven underground. So it's in the midst of this religious conflict that Elijah, this prophet of action, uh, is uh, introduced to the story. He boldly goes into the royal uh, court of Ahab and proclaims a message of judgment. He tells the king that a great drought will strike the land as a result of Ahab's unfaithfulness to Yahweh. Now, the threat of drought is particularly poignant because it strikes at the heart of what Israel had hoped to gain in worshiping Baal. Uh, Baal represented fertility and, and new life and storm clouds and rain. And in worshiping Baal, Israel hoped to be able to secure through Baal its own prosperity, its own security, its own fertility, apart from the gracious provision of its God. So a drought called into question the effectiveness of Baal worship and was really intended to press Ahab back into the exclusive worship of Yahweh. So the drought culminates in this dramatic showdown between uh, Baal and, and Yahweh on Mount Carmel. And I, I kind of imagine it as a kind of dance duel from the TV show World of Dance. Uh, Elijah challenges Jezebel's prophets to, to a worship off. So two altars are erected on the mountain, one to Baal and one to Yahweh. And attending one of these altars are, are 450 prophets of Baal. And attending the other altar is Elijah on his own. And Elijah sets the terms of the contest, and he says, the God who answers by fire to receive the sacrifice is the true God, is indeed God. And I think the author of this passage in Kings really wants us to feel um, uh, something of, uh, of the swagger in, in Elijah's demeanor. Um, while the prophets of Baal are whipping themselves into a frenzy and and calling upon their God, Elijah just sort of sits back and relaxes and kind of taunts their uh, attempts with some, some smack talk, some, you know, uh, Iron Age smack talk. Uh, and, um, and when they're exhausted and there's no uh, response from Baal, Elijah casually goes up to, to a pile of stones, erects an altar, places the sacrifice, pours a bunch of water on it to make it really difficult to ignite, and then simply prays to God to receive the offering. And a blast of fire comes down from heaven, receives the whole thing, the water, the, the wood, the sacrifice, the whole bit. And in that moment, Elijah and Yahweh are vindicated. The people shout, Yahweh is God, the prophets of Baal are put to death, and the drought shortly comes to an end. And this demonstrates that Yahweh is not only the true God, as opposed to Baal, but Yahweh is the one who takes care of God's people and brings fertility to the land and is the one who deserves worship and devotion. Now, as wonderful and powerful as this, this scene is, it is a momentary victory for Elijah and his God. The royal court continues um, to support the flourishing of Baalism uh, within Israel. And Jezebel is 
absolutely enraged that 450 of her prophets have been put to death by Elijah and vows to exact revenge on the prophet. And that's where we find him today in our reading. Um, Elijah's short-lived success led him to just a profound sense of failure and, and ultimately despair. So the swaggering, confident prophet of action who was on Mount Carmel now finds himself you know, a 40-some-day journey south uh, uh, at the end of his tether, sitting on top of Mount Horeb. Uh, and now, while most of the time in Scripture, uh, people go to, to mountains to experience something transformational from God, Elijah isn't here for spiritual renewal or for consolation, but really he's here on Mount Horeb uh, to, to resign his vocation, to give up the call and, and ask God to take his life. So on this mountain, while Elijah is sitting there and praying and, and, and waiting to die, uh, he sees these three signs of these traditional signs of God's presence. We, we call them theophanies, which are uh, visible uh, signs of, of God uh, in the form of wind, in the form of a mighty earthquake, and in the form of fire. And even though these, these signs are often accompanied by wonder and awe and transformation from those who experience them, they, they fall flat on, on Elijah. He does not see God in the fire, in the wind, or the earthquake. I think this describes what spiritual writers might call desolation. It's a sense that God's presence can't be found even in the midst of those things where we would normally encounter God. Maybe a psychologist would look at this and see something that looks like depression, where sorrow is so deep that even those things that we normally love uh, don't bring us or can't bring us joy any longer. Whether we're talking about desolation or depression, Elijah remains empty in this echo of the wind, of the earthquake, and of the fire, and he's awash in the sound of sheer silence. Dejected, he wraps his scarf around his face and makes to leave and heads toward the mouth of this cave. But before our prophet departs the mountain, he hears again the voice of God in the form of what I think is a kind of curious question. God says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And in response, Elijah reiterates how, in spite of his boldness, his fervor, his swagger, his devotion, he feels like a failure. The people never returned back to God, ultimately. And so standing here on this holy mountain, Elijah feels alone and under threat. So I'd like us to hear again what God's response was to Elijah. He says, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haliel as king over Aram. You shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel and you shall anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes the sword from Hazael, Jehu shall kill. Whoever escapes the sword from Jehu, Elisha so shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not yet kissed him. At first blush, these seem like 
curious words. They're not particularly comforting. Um, where's the, hey, Elijah, it's going to be okay. Or the more characteristic, fear not, I'm with you, Elijah. Or, um, you know, it's okay. Uh, you, you can give up your call, Elijah. Uh, as I said in the beginning, Elijah is a prophet of action, not a prophet of words. So in the midst of his despair and desolation, God responds to Elijah with a renewed call to action, a renewed call to his vocation. So in conclusion, I want to spend a little bit of time suggesting that these unusual words of comfort might offer us some encouragement in our own experiences of stress and exhaustion and despair today. There are four takeaways that I invite you to mull over as you think about this passage from 1 Kings 19 throughout the rest of this week. Though the first is that God calls Elijah to go back. Our prophet has come to Horeb in order to retreat from the action, to leave Israel, to leave his calling, and to travel an extraordinary distance away from the place where he was called to do his work. In our own context, we might be tempted to turn back from the fight, and I wonder if this word to Elijah could encourage us to stick it out when times are hard, and particularly to keep up the fight for justice and equity and to stay the course, even when it seems like the work that we're doing isn't accomplishing the goals that we had imagined. Second, Elijah is called to anoint two new kings, a king in Aram and a king in Israel. So Elijah is not only propelled back to mission, to the activity to which he was called originally, but he's called into the midst of the political fray. He's encouraged to demonstrate God's concern and investment in the people of Israel, but also among other global powers like those of Aram. Now, there are countless differences between Iron Age monarchies like those in ancient Israel and ancient Aram and contemporary democratic republics like our own. But I read this and I wonder if God might be calling us to continue to engage in the political sphere in ways that support the value and the work of the kingdom of God in the world and to not shy away from politics and political engagement. God is concerned with politics. The third thing is that God calls Elijah to find help and help in the form of the prophet Elisha. Eventually, Elisha becomes the successor to Elijah's ministry. However, for something like eight years, they spend time together, working together within Israel, doing the work of God, preaching and proclaiming the word of God in deed and action. So I wonder if a takeaway for us here might be something like, when times are difficult, we can't expect to go it alone. I mean, if the great prophet Elijah, who called down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal, needs a protege or a sidekick, maybe you and I also need to seek out and find those who can come alongside us and help us in our own struggles for the work of the kingdom of God. And lastly, God reminds Elijah that he is not alone. He may feel like he's the last righteous person in Israel, but God has kept God's hand on a remnant of over 7,000 people who had yet to fall to worship uh, Baal. 
So often when I'm in despair, I know that I feel like I might be the only person that feels the way that I do or believes the things that I believe or is trying to accomplish the stuff that I'm trying to accomplish. But what a story like this tells us that is even though we feel that we might be alone, there's a community of people surrounding us who are committed to God and God's works of justice and reconciliation around the world, even if we can't see them. So as I think about the work that lies ahead of us, whether it's advocating for justice and equity and inclusion in our world, or surviving the day-to-day -day challenges of existence in the midst of a global pandemic, or how we are gonna figure out to juggle our careers and our families in a time of incredible uncertainty. I take heart, I take, um, I, I receive uh, confidence in the words of God to Elijah to keep up the good work, get involved with the world out there, find people who can help you, and don't forget, you're not alone. Amen.